Guys, we are in our second week. Last week, you were up with high school uh, for our series, Where is God? The Story of Esther. And the reason we're saying, Where is God? If you guys weren't here with us last week, we'll catch you up a little bit. The reason we're saying, Where is God? is because God is never mentioned by name in the book of Esther. It's one of only two books in the Bible where that actually takes place. Uh, one is Song of Solomon, which, you know, I don't know, read that later. And, and then the other is Esther. It's this literary device where the author is, is inviting you as readers, spectators in the book of Esther, to find God in the coincidences and the ironic reversals of the book. And tonight, our big idea is this, is that following God or doing what is right, following God is not always what is popular. And I want to tell you guys a story about two young ladies. This was uh, before your guys' time, but I remember this clearly because I know you guys have heard all about the different school shootings and the things that go on, but when I was a friend in high school, there, the very first big school shooting happened. A freshman in high school in 1999. I can remember going to school and, uh, and being afraid for the first time in my life. And I remember because I heard this story about a school in Colorado called Columbine High School, where two young men by, uh, by the name of Dylan Claybold and Eric Harris decided to go in and shoot people in their own school. And two of these young ladies are pictured up here. Two of you guys' left, the young lady, her name is Rachel Scott. Rachel Scott was shot by Dylan Claybold and Eric Harris outside of her school during lunch, just out talking to another student. Rachel reportedly was asked if she believed in God, and after she'd already been shot, she re- reportedly responded, you know I do, before they delivered the shot that ended her life. And then we have next to her, Cassie Bernal. Cassie also killed in that shooting. She was killed in the school library and was reportedly asked the same question, to which she simply replied, yes, that she believed in God. Maybe your struggle to live for Christ isn't quite so dramatic, right? I mean, let's just be honest. The odds are actually in your favor that this isn't going to happen to you. These odds are in your favor that this is never going to happen. But let's break it down to something a little bit less dramatic. Maybe if you got the, the temptation to, to, to walk away or to, or to turn away from following Christ in a particular circumstance or to choose what's wrong is someone has the test answers to the test that you need to take at the end of the week. And, and everybody's going to look at those test answers. Everybody, right? And you have a decision to make. Do I follow Christ or do I do what's popular? Maybe, you know, you're at practice and the coach is telling you to run laps, but coach is busy talking to a parent and you think, you know, I could run right across the middle of the field and cut this lap short. And he wouldn't know. You know, maybe your friends are making fun of somebody behind their back. Maybe people are mocking someone else who's a Christian. You know, in my, in my day when I was in school, middle school, the major burn was to call somebody a Jesus freak. Maybe someone's going to ask you to do something you know is wrong. Take a drink, try this, break this rule. So tonight, I actually want to look at our story in the book of Esther before we look into chapter 3, which is where we're looking tonight, if you have a Bible on your phone, if you've got uh, a paper Bible with you, that's great. But Esther chapter 3. In Ch- Esther chapters 1 and 2, we find this happens. We're in the, the country of Persia. We're in the capital city of Susa. 
And we have King Xerxes, who is the king over this massive, massive kingdom. And his queen is a woman named Vashti. And after uh, King Xerxes has, has gotten himself drunk, he's at this big party that he's throwing for all of his friends. Uh, he invites Queen Vashti. Well, actually, he orders her to come and, and display herself for everyone to see. And she doesn't take very kindly she to the idea of just being someone to be gawked at, someone to be stared at, someone to be used for the king's amusement. And the king doesn't take too kindly to that. And he has her banished. He gets rid of her. Now Esther, through a series of events, uh, is elevated to queen. Esther is a Jewish girl who's probably between the ages of 14 and 16. And she's elevated to queen. And you guys were here last week. You learned that her being queen isn't like what you think of in the movies where like the king and queen sit side by side on thrones and they rule together and they love each other. She was more like a, a, the king's slave. She just had more benefits in her position than the other slaves of the king. Then we have her, uh, her relative, this guy named Mordecai. And Mordecai is, is actually her guardian. And Mordecai sits at the gates of, of the city every day and he hears two of the king's servants uh, having a plot to kill King Xerxes. And Esther, rather than making the decision to like just let that go, she actually reports it back and the king's life is spared. I want you guys to notice that right there, that would have been even something there. Hearted was right. I mean, the decision to save a man who, she doesn't have a loving relationship with him. Intents and purposes, she's a slave. And she still does what's right. But tonight we're going to see someone else who does something that is right in the face of adversity as we look into Esther chapter 3. And I'm going to be kind of flying through. You'll see some, some scriptures up here on, uh, on the screen. We're going to give you kind of a snapshot of what's going on. Well, the people are supposed to bow as, as this man named Haman walks through the city. He's like the number two guy. He's right next to the king in importance. And the king has actually said that as, as people, as Haman passes by people, they're supposed to bow down to him. They're supposed to pay him honor. And as this happens, a man named Mordecai, who we've already met, Mordecai is going to refuse to do so. Now, one thing that I know Tim touched on last week is, is where these two guys came from, their family line. It's important to know. Okay, way back in uh, when we were doing our study on the study of King David, we looked at this idea that Solomon was going to take over a particular city. He was attacking a particular people group. God told him, don't spare anyone. And yet he spares this guy named Agag. He's, a key, he's the king of the city. He spares Agag. Now, Haman, who's the bad guy in the story, Haman is somebody who is a direct descendant of King Agag. And also, we have Mordecai, who's a direct descendant of King Solomon. Do you guys think there's some bad blood history going on already? Of course there is. So Esther chapter 3, we're going to pick up in verse 2, and this is what we see. It says, All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. Now, the royal officials, they see this going on. 
they know who Mordecai is, and they go and they ask Mordecai, Mordecai, dude, what are you doing? You have to bow down, man. This is, these are the rules. You need to be doing this. Why aren't you doing it? And Mordecai's answer, we find in scripture, is basically, he says, I'm not going to do it because I'm a Jew. Now, it's important to know why that is key. Right? Mordecai is of the Jewish nation. He's of the nation of Israel who are in captivity in Persia. And while they're in captivity, they still need to follow after God. So he's not bowing down to Haman because Haman is not due the same type of honor that he would give to God himself. Haman finds out about this. The Bible actually says, that uses this word that Haman is enraged. Have you ever met somebody who's enraged? Like somebody who's just losing it? Like, I mean, they just are so far gone. You're like, what is wrong with this person? That's the picture I get. Because all throughout the book of Esther, we're going to see King Xerxes and Haman having these series of temper tantrums. And they are having an, abs- he's having an absolute temper tantrum here. He finds out, it says that he is enraged. And Esther chapter 3 verse 6 says this, Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, he scorned. In other words, he's like, I, he didn't want to consider it. He hated the idea of killing only Mordecai. Like, first of all, bit of an overreaction, am I right? Like, that'd be like me coming in here and be like, I'm giving out high fives. And I'm like, all right, we got high fives. All right, sweet. And then one of you does high five me. And like somebody comes and tells you, you're going to let him get away with that? He'd high five you? And I'm like, you know what? I'm not even satisfied with killing him. I'm going to kill his fan. Like, does that make any sense? Would you guys look at me and be like, Curtis, whoa, bro, we're calling the cops number one. But that's a bit of a reaction. Okay. He's not even satisfied with that. It goes on to say this. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews. I mean, this is that beyond insane. Throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. So Haman actually goes to the king. He convinces King Xerxes to write this decree because it convinces him that there are certain people, certain people, who are undermining him. So basically what Haman does is one psychopath telling another psychopath that his reign is in danger. I mean, what could go wrong, right? No big deal. So Esther chapter 3, picking up in verses 13 through 15, it says this. It says, dispatches were sent by courier to all the king's provinces with the order to destroy, kill. I mean, if it's not just a kill, right? And annihilate the Jews. Killing them isn't enough? Like, like we're going a step further. Annihilating, right? Okay. We got to use a stronger word. Kill's not strong enough here. Uh, It says, young and old, women and children. Yes, this is dark. Young and old, women and children. We're talking about infants now. On a single day, the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. And then, not only are we going to kill them, we're going to plunder their goods. So we're going to take everything they own and be like, that's mine now. And then it says a copy of the text of the Edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so they would be ready for that day. I find the end of this verse to be really interesting. It says, The couriers went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The king and Haman sat down to drink. They do a lot of that throughout this book. 
It says the city of Susa was bewildered. It means they were confused, guys. Like, I think you guys would be confused, right? I mean, the people who weren't even Jews, even they were confused by what was sent out by the king. The Persians are even like, this seems a little crazy. We're talking about a government-sanctioned Persian version of the Holocaust. This is the annihilation of the Jewish people from the Persian Empire. That's what's being ordered here. And I want us to take away something from this. I'm going to connect this back to Jesus because I think it's so important that we understand how does this affect me today? Because I think we get this passage and we go, yeah, okay, well, like, I mean, that sucks for them, but I don't really see the connection. And so I want you to understand this is that following God comes with consequences. I mean, that's probably not something you hear in church all that often, right? When we hear like, come, come to Jesus, everything will be great. No, I, I, you guys, I don't think Jesus even sells that. Following God comes with consequences. Jesus says as much. In fact, in John chapter 15, 8 through 21, he says this to his disciples. These, these guys who have been following him, these guys who are super close to Jesus, he isn't, uh, he's about to leave them for the cross. He's about to be crucified. And he's not saying, but guys, it's all good. Everything will be fine. You know what? Hey, I'm God, so one day on this earth, it's cool. You guys are going to have palaces and kingdoms. I'm coming back, and I am going to make everything awesome. He will do that one day. He's preparing his disciples for the life that they're going to, that they're going to have because they follow after him when he says this in John 15. He says, if the world hates you. That's a great way to start a motivational speech. Can you imagine me in the locker room? All right, guys, let's get ready. Going to minister some people. If the world hates you, you're like, Jesus, this is a terrible pep talk, right? Keep in mind that it what? Hated me first. If you belonged to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. Remember what I told you? So he's calling back to something he's told them before. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you also. If they obeyed my teaching, they will obey yours also. They will treat you this way because of my name, for they do not know the one who sent me. I mean, you guys might be thinking that as we read the story of Esther, okay, that's, that's just reserved for the Jews of Persia. When they followed God, they were in this foreign country, and, 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 and Haman didn't like them, and so people went after him. But Jesus doesn't let us get away with that. And Jesus promises this for those who follow him. Yet it's interesting to me how surprised we get when people don't like us because of the fact that we follow Jesus. Like, we're astonished. I'm an American. You can't not like me because of what I believe. I have rights. We get so surprised when Jesus, the person whom we're following, says, look, this is going to happen. In fact, if Jesus says it's going to happen and no one dislikes you because you follow Jesus, you might want to take a look at how much you're actually following Jesus. 
I'm not talking about the Christians who give Jesus a bad name here. I'm not talking about the people who, there's a guy like, hey, you can disagree with me, hate him, whatever, but every time I've gone to Safeco Field or CenturyLink, there's a guy out there with a megaphone and a giant sign telling everybody in line they're going to hell. I went to the game. But if, because, I, because I went to a baseball game, I'm going to hell. I'm not talking about that guy. I'm not talking about the guys, the, the Christians who give Jesus a bad name. I'm talking about the disdain the world has for Jesus. I mean, the gospel, you guys, is offensive. I want you to understand that. The gospel of Jesus Christ is offensive. What I want us to be careful of, if you're in here and you're sitting in here right now, Christian, who says they follow after Jesus, you need to not be adding to the offense. I'm not asking you to be a Christian who goes out looking to be persecuted. Well, Curtis said, you know, I've got to go out and like stir some stuff up so people will... Per- no, do that, okay? That's foolishness. I'm simply asking you to ask yourself, what will I do when it happens? Because if you're following Jesus, it's not going to be an if. Jesus doesn't say like, if you follow me, it might happen. I don't know. He says it's going to happen. And it happens to Mordecai when he follows God in the book of Esther. I mean, think about how offensive the message of the gospel is, you guys. The message of the gospel says this. It says that you and I are bound for hell and destruction. That when we come screaming into this world, we are bound for hell and destruction. Separation from God forever because of a thing called sin. That we need a savior. And, guys, we are capable of saving ourselves. That flies in the face of just about everything you hear every day, which is you do you. It's good enough. Like, what, if you're just a good person, it flies in the face of human pride and self-sufficiency. The gospel is offensive enough. And if I can just make a plea that if you're a Christian in this room, please just don't make the gospel more offensive. Don't add to it. Let it be what it is. Let it be the gospel of Jesus and that alone. And I'll say this, you guys have a decision to make before the hard decision ever happens. Long before Esther, even longer before Jesus' ministry, there's this guy named Joshua. And Joshua was this great leader of the Jews as they entered the promised land after they were slaves in Egypt. And he's challenging the people of Israel to choose God over any other option. He's not promising them that it's going to be easy. He doesn't tell them that they'll have worry-free lives. He doesn't say everything will be great all the time. He simply says this in Joshua 24 verse 15. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, can we just be honest that maybe some of us have thought about what it's going to cost to follow Jesus and we just don't think it's worth it. He says, if it's undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. Whether they're gods of ancestors, the ones they served beyond the Euphrates back in Egypt, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you're living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. Joshua makes a stand. He makes a commitment. He chooses his side. My question to you guys is, who will you serve? Who are you going to choose? 
And what you, and before you answer that inside, I want you to think about this, that what you do reflects the answer to that question. What you do, how you behave, the choices you make, they speak a lot louder than what you say. And I'm not saying you will never mess up. I'm not saying you will never sin. But what you say says, or you do says a lot about what you really mean. I mean, I can say I choose to follow Jesus, but what do my actions say? We see multiple examples of this in Scripture. The author of James says that a faith without deeds is dead. He says, look, you show me your faith by what you say, and I'll show you my faith by what I do. Jesus quotes the book of Isaiah. He quotes the prophet Isaiah when he said that people praise God with their lips, but their hearts were far from him. In other words, they, they sing praises to God. Their actions show that they don't really mean it when they go and live out their everyday life. I don't know about you, but that's pretty convicting when I come on Sunday or Wednesday and I sing songs and then like I go out the next day and I make decisions that don't reflect that I mean what I sing. Then you have Paul, a hero of the church, says in first, his book to the Corinthians in 1 Corinthians that if he's to act out of any other motivation other than love for God, his actions are absolutely meaningless. And you have Mordecai who decides to stand and not kneel. See, Mordecai, Esther, Cassie Renal, Rachel Scott, Joshua, they didn't make these decisions in the moment. And I think that's what we often think is like, well, you know, I'll, when the moment comes, I'll stand, I'll stand my faith. I don't know. Will you? I would venture to say that if you're not actively making decisions that show that you are somebody who follows after God, if you're not practicing this, then when that moment comes, when the extreme moment comes, if somebody were to actually put a gun to your head, you'll run. You won't stand. Because this is something that they put into practice, something that they decided long before then, so that when the fiery moment came, when the heat of the moment was on, the decision was already for them. You don't make a decision to follow Jesus in the heat of the moment. I thought of this example was this. A firefighter, right? They come up to your house and the, the house is on fire. What does a firefighter do? They put out the fire. But what, what do they do? Where do they go? They go into the house. Now, that is contrary to every, every synapse that's firing in the brain, every muscle, nerve ending in their body is contrary to what the human condition would tell you to do. We have a natural fear of fire. Well, unless you're a junior high boy. Right? <laughs> but humans, like every other thing on this planet, every other living thing, have a natural fear of fire. But firefighters have trained themselves. They've made a previous decision that they are those who stand up to the fire. Same thing happens. My house is on fire. What am I doing? I'm running out. I'm running out. And what's the difference? It's a predetermined decision. It's a practice. When the heat is on, what we choose to do, I would venture to say that that was decided long before the heat was on. Are we willing to count the cost of following Jesus? And we have Mordecai here as an example. He's not perfect. He's far from it, actually. The further we get into this story, we'll see Mordecai is not always perfect. But he makes the right decision here. He did choose whom he would serve. And it wasn't the popular decision. It wasn't the popular opinion. 
I mean, how easy would it have been for Mordecai to just comply and be like, you know what, I'll, I'll, it's cool. Okay, I still love God inside though. I'm just going to go pray to God now. You guys, he could have done that. He could have decided to just serve God silently, but act in a way that doesn't show that he serves God at all. That's not what he did. He wasn't motivated to comply to ungodly action out of fear. And I think so often, guys, we are driven we're driven by our fear of what's going to happen if we do stand up for what we believe. If we do choose the right thing, if we do follow Christ, we're afraid of what might happen. It tells me a lot about myself when I do that. Because I've done that. It tells me an awful lot about myself. It tells me that in that moment, I'm more afraid of the judgment of other people than I am of God. Can we just be honest that that is, there's, there's an inequality there that is mixed up. So tonight, I want to ask you guys, what drives you? Is it fear? Is it conviction? Like Joshua in Joshua 24 Choose for yourselves today whom you will serve. Whether your fears, maybe it's popularity that you want to serve, what people think of you. Maybe it's your ambition, what you want out of life. Maybe it's just yourself. It's just plain old fashioned pride. Or is it going to be serving God? Is it going to be serving Jesus Christ who died for you? Mordecai made a decision, and it wasn't popular. And it could, at this point in the story, it cost him everything. So I'm going to invite the worship team back up. Guys, I want you to think about, as we sing this last song, choose this for yourselves this day, whom you will serve. Because you will not make that decision in the heat of the moment. That decision is decided now. It's decided beforehand. You have to know before it happens what you're going to do. Choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve. You guys, let's stand and sing the song together. <clears throat> Guys, I want to give you just one thing that you can do, okay? I, it, and, and I'm not going to tell you this because we want to have a ton of kids here. But maybe for you, it is, it is a simple thing. Standing for Jesus looks like your friends don't even know you come to church. 
don't even know that you've invested in a relationship with Jesus. And so for some of you in here tonight, like, I don't want any Zach Merzada flags left at the end of the night. I don't want to see any on the back counter. For some of you, it's just as simple as inviting somebody to come next week and hear about the love that Jesus has for them. Maybe that's your brave step in standing for your, for your faith. It's just handing somebody a flyer and saying, hey, this is going to be awesome. I, I really like you to come with me. Maybe that's what it is for you. Some of you in here right now, you're like, you know, I, I have been coming to church for a long time, been coming to them, and I have no clue what's going to happen. I have no clue where I will spend eternity. When you talk about standing up for your faith, like, I don't even know if I've got that. You guys, please come talk to me. Talk to your small group leader. At least, at the bare minimum, get some questions answered that you've, you've had and you've not expressed. Don't leave not knowing where, you're, where you stand with God. Let me pray for us, and then we'll get out of here. God, thank you so much for stories of people like Esther and Mordecai who, who stood up in the face of opposition, who stood firm in their faith, who stood firm in their convictions to not bow, to do what was right, motivated out of, out of their, their love for you, out of following after you. I pray that we would be the same type of people, that the students in this room who claim to follow you, clear name, that they would make decision after decision after decision to follow you in the little things. So in the heat of the moment, the decision to follow you or not has already been predetermined in their minds. They've already been practicing. They've already said that they would be the type of person who will run into the fire. God, thank you so much for loving us when we least deserved it. Thank you for giving you all for dying for us so that we might have life forever with you. God, I pray that you would help us to stand firm as we follow you with our lives. In your name we pray. Amen.